0: This episode of Novara Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Novara Live, where I have two very esteemed guests for you this evening. In the second half of the show, I'll be joined by my colleague Ash Sarkar. For the first half, political scientist Norman Finkelstein. Um, Very interesting interview. You'll be seeing quite a lot of it um, now. Um, later on, we'll talk about the Israeli ambassador being caught lying in a Sky interview. And we're going to be looking at I mean, some really sickening stories, actually, about babies and sort of the pretense that Palestinians are are holding fake babies when in fact they are real babies. You know, it's all quite distressing, but I think important to talk about. Um, do stay tuned for for all of that. Um, let's go to our first story. After the end of the ceasefire last Friday, Gaza has once again suffered a weekend under heavy bombardment. The most intense fighting is now focused on Khan Yunis, which was subject to heavy bombing yesterday and last night. Tanks have been reported on the outskirts of the city. According to the Gazan Health Ministry, 16,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war so far. They say 70% of the dead are women and children. For an impression of the past two days across the Gaza Strip, this is the latest report from the
2: BBC's Jeremy Bowen. Lost boys, brothers looking for their father. My dad's being killed, I swear my dad's being killed they're lost in the mighty vengeance promised by israel then they found their father and brother were dead the strike filmed by a freelance journalist destroyed the home of the abu Aida family in Jabalia, northern gaza these are the latest israeli army pictures they're pushing forward into southern gaza The American Defense Secretary says he's warned Israel repeatedly that if its troops don't stop killing so many Palestinians, they will drive civilians into the arms of Hamas, turning a tactical victory into a strategic defeat. (laughs) In Khan Yunis, civilian casualties are overwhelming the hospital. Israel insists civilians are getting warnings and time to get to designated safe areas. Are you an official on the spot? says that's not happening.
3: Everything's broken down. The war on children has resumed and, and with a ferocity, at least here in southern Gaza, that has not been seen before during this war. Another narrative that is so dangerous, this idea of that uh, we will not put the, it, it, what happened in the north will not be allowed to happen in the south. Well, I, I can bear witness to its happening.
1: It's James Elder from, from UNICEF. So it's, it's not exactly an ideological source, right? This is someone from the, the, the Committee for Children on the UN, the Charity for Children as part of the UN, and he is saying, this is a war on children. And what we saw in the north, we're now seeing in the south. And again, this is one of those ones where you don't have to take the individual's word for it, because we've got aerial footage. You know, We can see how much of Gaza has been destroyed. And if you bomb that proportion of uh, an area, of a territory, you are going to kill a lot of people and you are going to kill a lot of children. And we know that Israel have killed a lot of children. And it doesn't seem that the war is any less vicious and vindictive than it was before the ceasefire or the humanitarian pause, as many politicians like to call it. Um, to discuss the latest developments in the Gaza war, I spoke earlier today to Norman Finkelstein. Norman is the author of multiple highly regarded books on Israel-Palestine, including Gaza, An Inquest Into Its Martyrdom, which was published in twenty. 20- Eighteen. Um, as you can imagine, we had a broad-ranging conversation, and I started by asking him for his perspective on the events in
4: Gaza this weekend. My reaction was uh, a personal one. Uh, yesterday, there was an article in The Guardian, your Guardian, about these grids that Israel had handed out uh, or posted on the web of where the people in the south of Gaza are supposed to flee. And the article, I guess it was in the comment is free uh, section of the Guardian, the article indicated the extent to which these quote-unquote instructions are complete chaos. Nobody knows which way to go, where is safe, where is not safe. Most of these instructions are inaccessible to large parts of the population. And as I was reading through this article, immediately what came to mind for me was a statement that my late mother made uh, regarding her own experience during the war. So once she was interviewed about the subject, in my generation, there was a famous book. It's an awful book, but it nonetheless was famous by this so-called Holocaust historian, Lucy Dawidowicz, And the title of the book was called The War Against the Jews. And my mother reacted in indignation. It was not a war. It was an extermination. And she described with one metaphor how she conceived her experience. She said, we were like cockroaches. Every time the light was shined on us, we rushed in another direction. And then it was shined on us again. And we rushed in another direction and in another direction, like cockroaches. And people may, as always, be offended by my analogies, but it reminded me that description in the Guardian reminded me of the Palestinians rushing in this direction, rushing in that direction, the bombs falling here, rushing in that direction, the bombs falling again, rushing here, scurrying there, scurrying here, scurrying there. It's not a war; it's an extermination.
1: What do you mean by extermination? I mean, I know you've studied in depth the previous two bombardments on Gaza, so in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and twenty fourteen. Now you sort of document in in great detail the human rights abuses, the sort of callousness when it comes to human life. But they weren't wars of extermination. I mean, do you think that this war does now meet that definition? And if so, why?
4: You can use the Israeli terminology, which actually, in all of its sinister aspects, is nonetheless indicative of a deeper truth. In previous Israeli high-tech massacres on Gaza, they were referred to as mowing the lawn. And mowing the lawn uh, conjures the image of cutting the blades of grass. However, with the expectation that the blades of grass will grow back. Uh, The aim was to periodically reassert Israel's control, total control of Gaza and Israel's refusal to brook any resistance. However, October 7th was something of a different magnitude for several reasons. Number one, there was clearly and there remains a sheer bloodlust element to the Israeli reaction after October 7th, um, because the scale of the, oper- I would call it Operation Slash Atrocities that occurred on October 7th, they were of an altogether different magnitude than had occurred. In the past, I should be careful here because every statement of mine will obviously be used against me. When I say operation slash atrocities, it's not altogether clear to what extent what happened was due to orders from on high and to what extent it was the result of spontaneous actions by the people from Gaza. So uh, I am waiting myself, I'm not so confident the truth will ever come out, but I am waiting myself to see uh, that kind of distinction between orders from on high versus uh, initiatives taken spontaneously and personally. And there's also a second question, namely the extent to which the deaths were resultant of the actions of the individuals from Gaza and the extent to which they were the result of Israel in the course of firefights. Having said that, I want to make clear the evidence at this point is, in my opinion, conclusive that atrocities did occur on that day. I'm sorry for that long winded excursus. However, I have to be careful that when words are plucked from me, I have qualified what I have already qualified what I said. There's an element of bloodlust in the Israeli attack after October 7th uh, on a much higher level, because, you know, in the past, the pretexts for its operations were so trivial by comparison and even almost objectively. Um, Secondly, because. What happened on October 7th was such a colossal humiliation to Israel in that it undermined uh, its pretenses for having this world class, maybe first rank intelligence services. I mean, Israel has basically built an entire reputation on its capacity for special operations like Entebbe, its intelligence operations. In other words, its reputation rests less on its military prowess on the battlefield than it does on its various uh, extra battle capacities, intelligence, special operations and so forth. And that reputation was dealt a lethal blow by October 7th, and therefore Israel, to restore what it's called, it's called its deterrence capacity, namely the Arab world's fear of it, had to, as it were, ramp up its destructive capacity in order to compensate for its intelligence failure, spectacular intelligence failure. I mean, there's very little to compare to that. Um, and um, so that's a second reason why this Israeli uh, current round is on a qualitatively different level. Uh, and the third reason is obviously because As the cliché has it, every crisis is also an opportunity. And Israel saw this crisis as also an opportunity to for once and for all solve the Gaza question. And its solution has not yet been consolidated. Different people in the in the Israeli administration have made statements uh, going in different directions. Some say to transfer the entire population to Egypt, a mass ethnic cleansing. Some say to make Gaza uninhabitable, forcing the people at some point to leave because they have nothing to go back to. And some, like Netanyahu, analogizing, analogizing, excuse me, analogizing uh, the people of Gaza to uh, Amalek, which means an outright extermination. Uh, but uh, these are this is obviously a different goal. However, it's conceived, it's a different goal than mowing the lawn.
1: We've been highlighting on this show, I know you've been highlighting on your Substack and in various interviews, sort of the genocidal rhetoric which is coming out of Israeli politicians. I mean, it's pretty clear um, that's the way they are speaking. What's less clear to me is how possible it will be for them to achieve such maximalist aims. And I want to read um, a passage from Haretz from yesterday. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Israel on Thursday and met with the Israeli War Cabinet. Defense Minister Yov Galant and IDF Chief of Staff Herzi Halevi showed him the military plans for the continued campaign and spoke of a few more months of high intensity combat, a significant part of which will take place in the southern Gaza Strip. Blinken replied sharply, quote, You don't have that much credit. Unquote. In other words, the U.S. believes that Israel's military clock is out of sync with that of the international community. That latter clock is ticking much faster. And the reason I read that out is because obviously the US sort of putting their foot down would be one means by which Israel or the far-right members of Israel's government could be restrained from achieving um, their their maximalist aims. I mean, I'm not sure what you think about other um, sources of restraint on them, but what do you think Israel will be able to get away with in this war? We
4: have to begin with the obvious, which is, could be, missed, sometimes what's most obvious is most overlooked. Israel has gotten away with an awful lot already. Uh, There have been a number of analyses published comparing what Israel has done to any other conflict in the first quarter of the 20th century. And at any reckoning, at any level of analysis, what Israel has quote-unquote achieved, uh, whether it's in the deaths of civilians, the deaths of civilians as compared to combatants, the numbers of children killed. It's in a league all its own. So as we f- press forward to see whether Israel can achieve its final aim, we should not lose sight of its extraordinary achievements to date. Now, there is no question, and this is not a rhetorical flourish, there is no question whatsoever that all Biden has to do is pick up the phone and say stop, and it stops. If you will recall, Biden gave strict orders that when you enter al-Shifa hospital, it can't be a firefight. You better behave yourself, pretend you're human, difficult as that may be, pretend that you're human, you can't carry on the way you have with other hospitals. And that's exactly what Israel did. Remember, al-Shifa was Israel's prize. It was to use the expression from, to to borrow from the expression or to bastardize the expression from the British era of the British Empire, that was the jewel and the crown of their assault on Gaza, and nonetheless they were quite careful. Obviously, they committed crimes in, in Al Shifa, but it was on a very very low level, except for the mass expulsion. Of the 60,000 people inside Al Shifa. It was a kind of, you won't know American history, but it was a kind of trail of tears of the Cherokee Indians. Uh, it was about, in the case of the Cherokee, it was about 15,000. Here was probably an order of 40,000, 40, is emptying out of Al Shifa, because there were 60,000 people in Al Shifa at the time. But nonetheless, uh, as compared to what Israel normally does, it was a much uh, tamer level. And that's because Biden gave the order and Biden can stop the whole thing tomorrow. There's no quite It's not as if the EU, the only other place that's supporting Israel is the EU. It's not as if the EU is gonna defy the United States. Like Schultz is going to say, no, Zeke Heil, we're going to kill them all. No, you know, he may harbor that wish, but he's not going to say, I'm sure Ursula von der Leyen, the Nazi princess would be disappointed. Um, if Biden called it off, but obviously he has the capacity. Now, uh, people often say, well, uh, if Israel wanted to do X and Israel wanted to do Y, why hasn't it already done it? You know, Israel has nuclear weapons. Why hasn't it nuked Gaza? Um, If it really wanted to carry out an extermination, which is, I don't want to belittle people, but I'm, Moments' reflection, the answer just completely obvious. Countries don't operate in a vacuum. There are things you can do and there are things you can't do. To take an example, which again may offend people, but I'll, I'll risk it. Um, the Nazi final solution could not have occurred during a peacetime. Hitler needed a war in order to carry out his plans. There's no question about that. There were very severe limits to what he could do up until 1939. If you remember, and you again, you're excused if you don't, uh, the German reaction on the whole, on the whole, the German reaction to Kristallnacht was very negative. Uh, Not necessarily because they cared about the Jews, but because they thought it was beneath the, civili- the German civilization, civilized people don't go around breaking windows in synagogues. That's what ruffians do. That's what thugs do. Um, so even in terms of, if we can use the expression public opinion in Nazi Germany, they were not at that point ready for a final solution. It required the war, the hysteria, the Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy to destroy Germany, and still it had to be done behind the scenes. You know, one aspect of the final solution that remains to this day an enigma is, did Hitler give an order? We don't know exactly what was the fashion because you couldn't do these things in the open. So there are always limits on, uh, 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 that curb a state's uh, uh, the, the, uh, implementation of a state's goal the goal is clear it's one way or another to wipe out the gaza problem one way or another you may say and i wouldn't disagree that certain ways of wiping it out are less humanly uh, polling than others and ethnic cleansing people still live You know an extermination they don't and I'm not going to be indifferent to that distinction um, So there are limits on Israel and in this case the primary limit is the United States obviously uh, what the US says what the US says goes says Uh, George Bush Sr. famously said in 1990 to Saddam Hussein, quote, what we say goes. And in the same case here, what we say goes. The United States is now under enormous pressure to stop the genocide, international pressure, and not trivially, domestic pressure. If you look at the recent the most recent results of the Time magazine poll, 70% of young people, ages I think 18 to 34, because yeah, 18 to 34, 70 percent oppose what Israel is doing. That's a very large number. And then among Democrats, Democrats, 70% oppose. And this is an election year. So these are serious constraints. My own guess is a turning point came with the Al-Shifa public relations debacle and at that point you couldn't trust the word, not that I ever did trust, but the public in general understood you couldn't trust the word Israel said about anything and my guess is uh, the United States is giving Israel, my guess is it's giving it two more weeks It's going to give it till Christmas, and then there will be a Christmas truce and the truce will tail off into something. There is a tension there, and I have to acknowledge the tension. I'm not a soothsayer. The tension is the following. Secretary of Defense Austin declared yesterday, we will not let Hamas win the war. Syed Nasrallah, in his last speech, the head of Hezbollah, said, we will not let Hamas lose the war. And as you can understand, that's, those are irreconcilable. The, uh, the one question that remains open is, how will Israel and the U.S. define winning the war? Up until now, the definition has been destroying Hezbollah. But now the definition has been scaled down a bit. It's killing the three main leaders.
1: You mean Ham- you mean Hamas, uh, not Hezbollah, just Hamas. Hamas. Excuse,
4: me. Excuse me, killing the three main leaders of Hamas. If they manage to do that, then they can declare victory. Uh, so even within this kind of manichean, we won't let them win. We won't let them war. there's a lose. There's still a kind of gray area. As to how you define victory and defeat, but my guess is I'm old enough to remember uh, the Christmas uh, ceasefires in Vietnam, uh, so I I, I kind of think that you
1: think they're building up to one. that, yeah. I, I want to ask you about Hamas, and I don't want to sort of rerun the the debate about condemnation. We we sort of reviewed your interview with Piers Morgan in some depth, so our, our audience would have would have pretty much seen your your answer on that, which I think is very thoughtful. Um, I, I want to ask more in, in in terms of sort of factual terms: what is their strategy? Who are they? What is the nature of Hamas? And I, I want to know from you, someone who has you know followed the situation in Gaza for a very long period of time. To what extent has your understanding? of hamas changed since october the 7th so not your 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 moral assessment but your understanding of their capability their strategy what is it they they want what is it that they are capable of doing have you had any sort of epiphanies since then as to or surprises since then as to the nature of hamas
4: i used to be a maoist and one of the statements by chairman mao as we called him back then that stuck with me it was from his report on the peasant uprising in Hunan province. At one point he says, quote, no investigation, no right to speak. And translation, if you don't know what the F you're talking about, then shut the F up. That's will put it more elegantly, or at least the English translation. I can't claim to be an expert on Hamas. I never was much interested in it. Uh, as the first sentence uh, of my book on Gaza reads, this book is not about Gaza, it's about what's been done to Gaza. Uh, because I never believed that the Palestinians in that situation had much agency. Uh, you can disagree on that, but that's my uh, that was my judgment. Uh, what changed after October 7th? I have to say it's a kind of... De- in some way, it's a depressing realization. Uh, the depressing realization is Hamas revealed a military capacity, which, which definitely su- shocked me, surprised me to a no end, and obviously shocked the Israelis. Now. I know a lot of people are not going to like what I'm about to say now, uh, but I will go ahead and say it. Um, Just a little bit of history, tiny bit of history. The original leader of Hezbollah was a guy named Massawi. Israel assassinated him. And they got Syed Nasrallah. Not a wise move by Israel. Israel is an extremely smart guy. He's an intense guy. He's an incorruptible guy. He is a kind of uh, Muslim Lenin. Uh, Bertrand Russell once described um, Lenin as a kind of thinking machine. He said Lenin. Was the most selfless person he had ever met in his life. He just had only one thing on his mind the revolution. Brutal, of course, Russell loathed Lenin the same way that Professor Chomsky loathed Lenin, uh, but never for a moment doubted his, so to speak, purity, determination, and also sheer brilliance the same thing with Nasrallah, and Nasrallah has reached the conviction which, in my opinion, is unshakable based on his historical experience that it is impossible to coexist with Israel. It must be effaced from the map. Now, to bring us to your question, the current leaders of uh, of uh, Hamas have been educated by a significant life experience. Mr. Sindwar spent ten years in a Israeli prison and have ex- has experienced the horror of Gaza concentration camp and the unspeakable, ineffable brutality of the Israeli government and citizens. The most recent polls show that about 60% of Israelis believe Israel is not using enough force in Gaza at the moment. And because of the spectacular event of October 7th, the people of Gaza aligned with the Hezbollah have now come to the conclusion that not only can they not live with Israel, But they have the military capacity. Of course, it will be a long struggle and it needs to be developed. But they have the military capacity to achieve their goal of ridding their neighborhood of that satanic state. I am not happy to say that. And now that I have, or this week, I'll achieve the venerable age of 70. Parts of me wish I could go to speak with Mr. Nasrallah and talk this question out. Although I am quite convinced that he will not be persuaded by me. In his last speech, uh, Nasrallah referred to his famous statement after the Battle of Bin Jabil in the 2006 war. He referred to Israel as, quote, a spider's web. Namely, you can just blow on it and it will disintegrate. And then he said, in the real rare moment, rare moment of self-congratulation, he said, many people are thinking the same thing now about Israel, a spider's web. The spider's web was the, so to speak, Arab translation of what Mao Zedong famously would say about the United States during the war in Vietnam, that the US is a paper tiger. As Mao said, it can take big bites, but it can still be defeated. And I believe that now the Hamas and Hezbollah and probably Iran are convinced that they can inflict an irreparable defeat on Israel. Now you might say to me, well, then you're agreeing with Israel. This is an existential war. They have to defeat Hamas. I would say there's a real speaking. Honestly, I'm not I'm not a bearer of, uh, I'm not going to be a bearer of good news. I think there is a real problem now. There's a real problem now. So that to me is the big change since October
1: 7th. Now, that was only the first half of my interview with Norman Finkelstein. So he ended up there by by talking about potentially Israel as a paper tiger. My sort of hypothesis here is that potentially what the last few weeks have shown is that Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran are, to some degree, a paper tiger because they haven't responded um, to, or you know, obviously Hamas did, but their allies haven't sort of risen up and... Responded to Israel's attack. Norman had a very interesting answer, as you can imagine. We will be uploading the full interview to our YouTube tomorrow. Um, it's pretty much unedited, so if you if you don't want to listen to the same answers twice, um, just scroll thirty minutes through that and and then listen to the to the second half of it. Um, if you want to listen to um, the whole thing again, um, just watch it from the beginning. Um, I'm joined now for the second half of the show by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. I was worried for a moment that you'd found a new co-host in Norman Finkelstein, but only half an hour. I reckon I can claw my way back into your good books.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, you, Ash, you, you have never ever once left my good books. That's actually true. That's that's the, the genuine truth, straight from my lips. Um, I'm sure it's believable as well. I don't. I don't think that's that will be shocking to anyone watching. Next story: More than six thousand children have been killed in Israel's war on Gaza. That poses a big challenge to their claim that only Hamas are being targeted. And in response, there's been a concerted effort by Israel and their supporters to cast doubt on the war's impact on children. Now, notably, that's involved the claim that deaths are faked. An example appeared on Friday in the Jerusalem Post. So you can see here Al Jazeera Post's blurred doll claims it to be a dead Palestinian baby. Now, here we've actually blurred. Um, the, the second picture as well, on the Jerusalem Post, it showed an unblurred picture of the face of uh, a, a dead baby that, al- the, according to the Jerusalem Post, was in fact a doll. Um, we are sorry to tell you, but in fact, the Jerusalem Post was wrong. What you saw um, underneath that headline, if we hadn't blurred it, was an image of a baby, five-month-old Mohammed al-Zahar. Now, he was killed by an Israeli airstrike. The mistake was brought to the attention of the Jerusalem Post, who deleted the article and released this statement. Over the weekend, we shared an article based on faulty sourcing. The article in question did not meet our editorial standards and was thus removed. We take this matter seriously and will be handling it internally in order to prevent similar incidents from reoccurring. We regret this incident and remain committed to upholding the highest journalistic standards at all time. You can see that's a somewhat vague statement, isn't it? Presumably the Jerusalem Post were too embarrassed to spell out the nature of the grim mistake they had made. To repeat, they published an enormous picture of a dead baby and they said, this is evidence of Palestinians faking the deaths of babies. This is a man holding a doll. In fact, it was a man holding a baby, his baby, who'd been killed in an airstrike. Of course, there is no shortage of horror stories when it comes to the impact Israel's war has had on Palestinian babies. One of the grimmest was this, verified by Human Rights Watch and here, reported in the Washington Post Israel's assault forced a nurse to leave babies behind. They were found decomposing. And this is from the report from the Washington Post. It was the height of Israel's assault on northern Gaza last month, and Al Nasser Children's Hospital was a war zone. The day before, airstrikes had cut off the Gaza City facility's oxygen supplies. Israeli tanks had surrounded the hospital complex and the Israel Defense Forces were calling and texting doctors, urging them to leave. But ambulances couldn't safely reach al-Nasir to transport the wounded, and doctors refused to leave the facility without their patients. Five premature babies were particularly vulnerable. They needed oxygen and medication administered at regular intervals. There were no portable respirators or incubators to transport them. Without life support, the nurse feared they wouldn't survive an evacuation. Then the IDF delivered an ultimatum. Al Nasser Director baka Code told the Washington Post, get out or be bombarded. So that's what the IDF told the hospital workers. An Israeli official, meanwhile, provided an assurance that ambulances would be arranged to retrieve the patients. So the nurse in charge of the babies at this point, as you can imagine, felt he had no choice but to leave. He was able to take one baby, one of the five babies, the one who he believed would have the best chance of survival without being attached to the oxygen in the neonatal unit. For the other four, the nurse hoped Israel would follow through on their promise to bring ambulances or to to, to take away the babies to safety. Now Israel didn't follow through on that promise and I should warn you, this next passage is extremely distressing and extremely graphic. So the Washington Post report. Two weeks later, the pause in hostilities allowed a Gazan journalist to venture into the hospital. In the neonatal intensive care unit, Mohammed Balusha made the awful discovery. The decomposing bodies of four babies, eaten by worms, blackened by mold, mauled, Balusha said, by stray dogs. A terrible and horrific scene, he told the Post. He took video. You might have seen... And um, that video, it was blurred sort of on Twitter for a while. And there was a moment where people were wondering, you know, is, is this verified? Is this real? Now it has been verified by Human Rights Watch, Washington Post. Just completely shocking, grim to read, just d- disgusting to, you know, just, you know, there are no words, right? Of course, horrific claims about the death of babies have been made by both sides in this war. You'll all remember the now infamous claim about 40 babies beheaded by Hamas now wholly debunked. Similar claims were made by official Israeli accounts. On October the 11th, um, the Israel Twitter account um, said this, infants and toddlers can't read the text in this video, but their parents can. 40 babies were murdered by Hamas terrorists. We know you'd do everything you could to keep your child safe. That's what we plan on doing. And then they had this sort of video, which, which they'd made sort of in the style of a child's cartoon. On October the 26th, that same accounts of the official Israel account posted this, trigger warning, listen to the eyewitness accounts of the eight burned babies and one beheaded baby, which were butchered by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th, pure evil. So these of course, incredibly distressing accounts of the, the murder, the abuse of babies, right? The difference here is none of these accounts were true. Haaretz this weekend published an investigation into some of the claims made by Israeli sources in the aftermath of October the 7th. So some of the more wild, exaggerated, um, shocking claims. Now, the article is in Hebrew, so I'm going to show you a summary from the journalist, Dimi Ryder. That's sort of instead of showing you the Google Translate, um, which some people have found recently isn't always 100% correct. So it's better to go to a journalist who has has translated and summarized. Um, So Dimi writes, Liza and Near, so that's the authors of the Heretz piece, found no evidence to substantiate some of the most iconic horror stories from the day, including 40 decapitated babies, pregnant women carved open with her fetus removed, children bound together and incinerated, baby found in oven, and pregnant hostage giving birth. So all of those stories, which you've probably heard about, none of them, have been substantiated or could be substantiated. Um, So he is in the section I'm going to show you, talk about the decapitated or incinerated babies or the babies hanging on a laundry line, depending on um, what version people have heard. Um, So Dimi says, these appear to be variants of the same story, the most infamous one being a dispatch by an I-24 reporter who attended the first press tour of the decimated communities and said an officer at the scene told her they found 40 incinerated babies, some of them decapitated Other variants included unspecified numbers of incinerated babies, babies found hanging on a laundry line. However, cross-reference data from police, national insurance, and the kibbutz movement shows we know of only one baby, Mila Cohen, one-year-old, murdered on the day, killed alongside her parents. Re-interviewed for this piece, the IDF spokesperson said said that the officer misspoke by saying babies when he meant children and suggested another officer was in shock from multiple arenas. Now, of course, one baby being killed, is a tragedy. The, 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 the notion of only one baby was killed, obviously, is, 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 is quite sickening in and of itself, right? But how many stories have we heard about babies killed by Hamas? All embellished with grim, almost satanic details, right? And they're almost universally put forward to say, Hamas is ISIS, that's what Israel always said, or Hamas are the Nazis. And then they, they give these incredibly, you know, they make it sound like a satanic ritual whereby they killed multiple babies at the same time, right? Yet. Throughout the whole of the October 7th attacks, only one died. And as I say, only one baby, that's, that's terrible. But if you think about the amount of stories we've heard about the different manners in which babies were killed, yet only one baby has died, right? All of those could be falsified by just looking at how that one baby was killed. It's, it's, it seems like I don't know how the stories managed to uh, get away from the facts to such a great degree. And it should also be said five children under 12 are so far also known to have been killed on October the 7th, as were 14 children aged 12 to 15. So, of course, terrible. But there was clearly a lot of exaggeration in the days after October the 7th, um, even by those who should have known better. Um, Also, I should say, lots of people trying to shame anyone who questioned those accounts, which sounded somewhat outlandish and turned out not to be in any way um, substantiated. Um, Ash, I want your thoughts on, I mean, it's a pretty difficult topic. I mean, e- even sort of reading out th- these things, which were, I mean, it seems like they were probably made up about babies is quite difficult to think about, let alone the the things which have turned out to be factual.
0: So I think I'm going to take them separately, even though they are related. One is the exaggeration and the embellishment of some of the atrocities that took place on October the 7th. And then the second thing is this move to delegitimize and cast doubt on um, the ongoing atrocities in Gaza. Starting with the first one about October the 7th, I think one of the things that's really important is that you've got two things going on at once. One is, I think, quite genuinely, you have an evolving situation where reports come out quickly, they're verified slowly. But instead of that happening within a context of journalistic scepticism, and that's not the same as callousness, that's not the same as not caring, but it's journalistic scepticism. And it's saying, okay, we're going to have to have quite a high threshold for putting out information because it's such a febrile atmosphere. What you had were two things working together. One, it was a massive propaganda project on the part of the Israeli government and the Israeli army, both of whom considered these atrocities as a reason and a justification to go off the leash in Gaza. So the more you pumped out these really distressing and very visceral stories around decapitated babies or a baby in an oven or a pregnant woman having a fetus you know cut out of her that these are things which shock and appall people they disgust people and then it makes the violence that you're going to do in retaliation seem justifiable even restrained in the face of this very visceral barbarity that you're saying happened on october the 7th now atrocities did happen on october the 7th many many people were killed the information that we're getting now especially as some of those numbers are being revised where some appear to have been killed uh, by israeli security forces um we're seeing that there was a mad rush to put out information that presented the worst case scenario as an absolute fact. And that's because it was in the interests, the political interests of the Israeli government. Because also, if you're dealing with a kind of satanic, unmitigated evil, it lets you off the hook for the security failures that got you there. And then the second thing it does is that it justifies a case for the kind of total war that You're seeing in Gaza. And then I think something else, another incentive is at play here as well, which is I think that journalists want to put out some of the most shocking information because it weirdly justifies their job as a journalist. They become a kind of ferryman or a mouthpiece for horror. And I think it kind of inflates their status and their importance. And so when you've got a confluence between that kind of career incentive and also a political incentive, the British and the American media establishments both are overwhelmingly pro-Israel in their editorial disposition. I think that you get this kind of unverified information being put out quite quickly. The second thing... I just want to say, before you go on to the
1: second one, uh, a thought I just had in terms of the Palestinian one. What really frustrated me here wasn't just that it got put out, but you would be attacked so heavily if you dared to question it, right? And what I always found is if you question something that the Israelis have said, it it was acceptable. If you question something a first responder said, that was unbelievable. That was beyond the pale. And... What this Fred? so obviously I can't read Hebrew, but I've read that whole Fred. I do recommend reading it saying lots of the stuff that the Zaka rescuers were saying, and I don't, I don't know anything about their intentions. I'm sure what they did was very brave and very stressful. But lots of the stuff they told the media, there's no way it could possibly be true because it doesn't match with the hard evidence. Sorry, um, I just wanted to come in on that because I was feeling quite frustrated, but go on. Mm.
0: No, no, I mean, I think, I think that's important. And I think it also highlights what journalistic work is. Now, I'm not going to speak to what the... Um, intentions of those first responders were because even if you take away any sense of ideological affiliation or political disposition, these are people walking into situations which are dangerous and traumatic. That's I think that's just an inarguable fact. So I'm not going to put on those people the same journalistic standards of rigor that I would place on people who work in the media and also Government and army spokespeople, right? I think that there is a a moral and categorical difference between a first responder saying something that isn't true and a government or an army spokesperson or a journalist repeating something that isn't true. I think these are just totally different moral things. But what's been, I think, horrible, and I've experienced this a bit less um, because quite deliberately I've been tweeting less, but something that you've been accused of and that Owen Jones has been accused of is when you step in with what I think is not just justifiable, but essential for journalists to do, which is draw a distinction between what we can say we know and what is verified and what isn't verified yet, or perhaps isn't verifiable or has been debunked, then you're being accused of something akin to Holocaust denial. That that's simply not the case. You're not saying these atrocities didn't happen. What you're saying is that there's a narrative in the media which is not being supported by hard evidence, that it may well turn out to be supported by hard evidence, or in the case of this horrible, ghastly image of 40 beheaded babies, it might end up being debunked. And it's your job as a journalist to do that, kind of rigorous fact checking, regardless of whether or not, you know, it's a nice job or a nice thing to do, because that's what journalists are meant to do. But when it comes to the Palestinians, and I've spoken about this before, there is this trope known as Pallywood, where in Israel, And amongst pro-Israeli advocates, there is a conspiracy theory that Palestinians invent and concoct kind of, you know, spectacular images of their own suffering in order to garner the world's sympathy. So we've seen uh disinformation pumped out online people taking stills from behind the scenes movie making and saying oh this shows evidence of palestinians applying makeup to themselves to show you know cuts and bruises and dead bodies and this is something which has gone on for for a really long time now here's the thing let's say we find a you know deep you know a a, a, one single image which isn't true because you may you may find that it's important and it's meaningful to say this particular image isn't true because the role of verifying information i think you've got to do it no matter what side that falls on but to try and weave that into a wider conspiracy theory of palestinians are actually making it all up is complete horseshit. um and it's it's something you come across again and again and again, particularly when you interact with with you know pro-Israeli advocates online and you sort of say, well, hang on, these accounts of Palestinian suffering feel plausible to me because it's backed up by third parties, NGOs, the UN. These are reports that have been done into, I don't know, say conditions in Israeli prisons. And there's just this sort of, you know, quite lazy fallback line of this is all Hamas propaganda. You can't trust a word a Palestinian says because they're always lying in the interests of Hamas. And I think the reason why you've got to, I think, maintain this frankly absurd narrative that Palestinian suffering is an invention of the Palestinian people is because if you were to recognize that suffering is real, Israel no longer automatically holds the position of moral legitimacy because... Quite simply, it's a Jewish majority state which was formed in the wake of the Holocaust and World War II. Right? Suddenly that kind of moral legitimacy is gone, and you've got to think about what it would mean to hold Israel accountable in light of this very real suffering. Now, when I saw the horrible um images of that man holding his baby. Um, I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to experience that kind of loss. And then I can't imagine on top of that, what it would be like to experience that loss and be called a liar on the front page of a newspaper and your dead baby's face plastered all over it and being told that's not real. The only things I can think of, which are comparable are, the parents of Sandy Hook toddlers who are being accused of being crisis actors by the likes of Alex Jones. Now, when Alex Jones did it, he was basically bankrupted by a class action lawsuit. He's seen as a kind of persona non grata in the world of serious media. But when the Jerusalem Post does it, they can issue a very vague apology and they're still going to be taken seriously by Western media outlets because the disposition of Western media outlets is to be pro-Israel. Um, and I think that's disgusting.
1: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine the cost? Like if, if you as a journalist put out a picture of, uh, you know, a, a dead Israeli and said this is fake, right? And, and then it turned out to be real. You said it was a dull, it turned out to be... I, I, I think your journalism career would be in serious trouble, I'm not convinced that's going to be the case in this situation. Um, Let's go to our final story of the evening. As Israel shifts the focus of its deadly war to southern Gaza, they're going to great lengths to show the world they're trying to avoid a massacre. Now, that's included putting out a numbered map so Gazans can flee Israeli Bombs. Now, Gazans have been told to listen to media outlets to tell them which numbered block is about to be bombed so they can flee to a neighboring one. So you can imagine they're saying 297 is about to be bombed, please move to 298. It's completely dystopian, right? If Gazans don't want to constantly move from neighborhood to neighborhood, avoiding bombs like they're in some kind of macabre video game, they have, though, been given another option. They can go to the Al Muwazi safe zone. Now, as you can see, this is a small strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see it there in the the bottom left of that map. Now, the existence of this zone has been touted by Israel as a sign of its humanitarianism. This is Israeli ambassador, Zipi Hotabeli on Sky.
0: There is, is, place, there is then... a river, there is a place in Gaza called the Muasi. The Muasi is the place where they all can have shelters. Uh, together with international organizations, we created shelters for the Palestinian people. No, so but, you cannot but, say Israel is not you know, no, facilitating because, but, but, but that. But together you, with humanitarian but... aid.
1: So according to Hotabeli, in Al-Muasi, Gazans will be safe from bombs. They'll have access to shelters and humanitarian aid. Very, very humanitarian Unfortunately for Hotavelli, Sky obtained footage of Mawasi.
3: This is where she's talking about. A desolate wasteland of sand dunes next to the Mediterranean Sea. There is no aid in Al Mawazi. There are no aid agency tents. There are no food kitchens. There is no help here.
1: Ash. Two million people live in Gaza. Um, according to Sipi Hotavelli, they should all go hang out on what looks like a kind of abandoned junkyard, essentially. I mean, uh, how can we possibly interpret that? Did she just think that, no, I suppose they know that actually no one can enter Gaza, so presumably they would have to have got some freelance journalist to take that film. Maybe she had assumed, oh, no journalist can go into Gaza, so I'm allowed to lie like this.
0: I don't know what you're talking about, Michael. I saw UNA trucks. I saw tents. I saw medical aid being delivered. I saw bomb shelters. In fact, I saw an outpost of the Ritz Gaza complete with Olympic sized swimming pool. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, What I'm saying now is only marginally more ridiculous than some of the things that Zippy Hotovelli goes on television to insist is the truth of the matter now? Don't forget. Let's let's take a little um, trip down memory lane and recall some of the things that she's had to say over the course of this war. She insisted that Al Shifa Hospital was Hamas headquarters. Now there has been no evidence produced by Israel to suggest that Al Shifa was Hamas HQ. She alleged specifically that every second door in gaza opens up onto an underground terror city now once more we've seen absolutely no evidence of this and now we have moasi which we're being told has got shelters and tents and aid ready for fleeing palestinians and it turns out to be little more than landfill at this point if you're going to invite Sipi Hotavelli onto television, I think that you have to be aware that you're not asking a reliable and legitimate public official questions. You're engaging with someone who is there to pump out misinformation. And then I think that means that your strategy as a journalist for engaging with her should be very different. Now, it seems to me from that clip there was pushback from Sky News. The editing in of that footage sh- to show the reality of Moasi, I think, was very important. Um, but I think it's 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 critical. I think for us to realise that when when you're dealing with, you know, an Israeli diplomat like Zippy Hotavelli, you're not. Dealing with a kind of international statesman who is, you know, very sober and very measured in the things that they say, and they're worried about preserving a sort of diplomatic balance. What you're dealing with is a propagandist who has absolutely no regard for the truth if that truth doesn't serve their state's interests.
1: Yeah. So I suppose to clarify what, what you saw in those two clips, so that was part of a package where they were showing a previous interview with Hotter Valley where she was talking about this safe zone. And then I think more recently, Sky had got footage from there. So I don't think she was called out in the interview. And I suppose that shows the problem here. I mean, I I, I wouldn't, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily judge an interviewee too, or an interviewer, sorry, too harshly for not being able to call that because obviously it's very, you know, if, 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 if there's just this scattergun approach to to the truth or to lies. It's very difficult to debunk them in real time. So I think Sky went away afterwards and debunked it. So credit to them for that. What I do hope is that the next time she comes on Sky, they don't just let her tell a new series of lies without getting her to be held account for the previous ones, right? I I would hope that when she is next on Sky being, you know, the Israeli ambassador putting forward Israeli talking they say, by the way, why should we believe anything you say? Because last time you came on Sky, you said this. And what we then had the time to do was to send presumably a freelance cameraman because obviously no camera people can go into gaza to to take some video of this place and it looked like this so why should we ever believe anything you say again i really hope um that is what they do next time they get around we will wait and see um ash we're gonna wrap up there thank you so much for joining me this evening
0: thank you so much for having me Michael.
1: Um, as I say, um, that was only the first half of my interview with Norman Finkelstein. So we will be putting out the full interview, I think around midday um, tomorrow. Um, So if you want to see the second half, come back, click on that, go halfway through and watch the second half of it, or you can watch it all again. Um, Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Actually, before we finish, I do have something else for you. Um, Have you seen this behind
3: the scenes video yet? The funny thing with Downstream is we have the guests come in, you know, Francis Fukuyama or whoever, and they're shocked. They are genuinely shocked at what Navarro's produced because they go, wait, you're socialists? You're communists? You're on the left? Nobody gave you any money to start any of this? You've got no seed capital, no venture capital? No, not a penny. Nobody gave us a single penny of investment, which had to be paid back. And they are stunned. You know, they, they, they do their press junkets with publishers or whoever. They come to us and they say, this is Channel 4. And then they say, well, actually on YouTube, they, this might get more views than Channel 4. They're shocked. And I think that is a really nice thing. It reflects incredibly well on my colleagues because they're brilliant talented people. It reflects really well on our supporters because they're part of a project which is stupefying. I think we can produce. I think we already are producing far better work than they produce on legacy media with a fraction of the resources, a fraction.
1: There's a longer version of that sort of behind the scenes video that was released yesterday as part of our end of year fundraiser. Um, We're just 1,500 people away from hitting our target, which was to have 5,000 new paid supporters. So we got 3,500 extra, and we want to get up to 5,000. So if you haven't already, please do um, sign up to make a regular donation via our website. It can be from as little as one pound a month. That will help us get to that target so we can all um, relax for a couple of days over Christmas. Um, thank you so much. If you are already a supporter, um, the link, of course, to NavarraMedia.com support is in the description below. Um, I will be back tomorrow at 6pm for another episode of Navarra Live. For now, good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to NavarraMedia.com support.